Hello. After the holiday break, we are returning today to our studies in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And we are picking up those studies which have been sequential from the beginning of the book in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 8. Now, this is the second letter to the churches of Asia, churches of Asia Minor, that is, which is now Western Turkey, basically. And it is the second of seven letters composed by the glorified Lord Jesus Christ and dictated to John the Apostle, who was then charged with incorporating the letters, uh, seven letters, into the book of Revelation, which he should then send copies of the book to each of the churches. And I would just point out, remind you, of the fact that when the text says that John should send the letters to the angels of the churches, that does not mean he should send them to some supernatural being. Uh, the word angel in the original simply means messenger. And although usually in the Bible, when the word angel is used, it does refer to a supernatural messenger, servant of God. Nevertheless, there are occasions when it refers simply to a human messenger. And that uh, must surely be the case in this letter and all the other letters of the book of Revelation because John had to send a physical book to them. And that would be rather difficult if the recipient was going to be a supernatural being. So uh, the Lord Jesus is addressing the messengers of the churches, those responsible in the churches to read out to the congregations, who of course didn't have Bibles of their own at that time, those responsible uh, for reading out to the congregation any receipt of apostolic material, letters, communications, or apostolic-related material, material from authority within the church. A copy would be sent to a church, and the church would be assembled, and someone would read out that message or epistle or whatever it might be. And uh, that would be repeated, actually. It wouldn't just be read out once because people were going to absorb the message in that uh, epistle or whatever it was uh, by means of repetition. So let's be clear about that. Well, I'm going now to read the letter, the second letter of the seven, and it is the letter to the church at Smyrna. Smyrna was um, a city about 25 miles north of Ephesus. And you'll remember that the first letter 
was addressed to the church at Ephesus. So let's read uh, these few verses. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things, says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. But do not fear any of those things which are about which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now we're going to uh, study this letter under three headings. The first heading is the sovereignty of Christ. The second heading, the suffering of the church. And the third heading, the sufficiency of grace. Now, although this is the shortest of the seven letters, consisting of only four verses, nevertheless, it is so packed with spiritual truth and counsel that we shall have difficulty getting through it in a single episode. Uh, we shall see how we go, but I think we shall need two episodes to cover all the ground. Now, the first thing that occurs in all the letters is what I call a self-introduction by the Lord Jesus Christ to that particular church. And these uh, self-descriptions are all taken from the first chapter of the book of Revelation, which is packed with descriptions and comments and self-identifications of Christ in his glory concerning his person, his work, and his proximity to the churches. The interesting thing is, of course, that from this uh, plethora of uh, possible descriptions in chapter 1, the Lord chooses just one, two, or three descriptions to introduce himself to a particular church. And those introductions are different. Each church has its own self-description from the Lord Jesus. And it doesn't take too much thought uh, to realize that the reason for this is that he brings forward from chapter 1 
those aspects of his character and nature, those attributes uh, and those works that are most relevant to that particular church in its current needs. And so it is here he brings forward two self-descriptions. The first is the description, the first and the last. And the second is the description, I was dead and have come to life. Now, we're going to spend a little time thinking about those self-descriptions because, as I've just said, these give us an insight into the needs of this particular church. Why is it that the church at Smyrna needed to be reminded of these particular aspects of Christ's nature, person, and work? Well, we shall discover more of that as we go through the epistle, but I want to summarize the self-descriptions in this way. The statement, I am the first and the last, is a statement of the sovereignty of Christ. And in chapter one, of course, it is linked with another equivalent description, the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, they are, of course, just different ways of saying the same thing. Christ is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. Now, anyone of you using the uh, English Standard Version, the ESV, will find that in chapter one, the Lord Jesus Christ is not called the Alpha and the Omega. He is called the first and the last. Uh, the term Alpha and Omega is applied only to the Father in the ESV translation of chapter one. But really it makes no difference because in chapter 22, uh, the Lord Jesus is uh, unquestionably called the Alpha and the Omega. So both God the Father and God the Son share this description. They are both the first and the last. They are both the Alpha and the Omega. But what do these expressions mean? Well, they speak, of course, of the eternity of the triune God. He, he, he existed before everything else existed, and he will exist if and when everything else vanishes. There's nothing before God and there's nothing after God. Everything is within the span and compass of God himself. And this is perhaps most easily illustrated by reference to the Alpha and Omega termination. Uh, we have this metaphor uh, because Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet and Omega is the last letter. 
that there is nothing before Alpha and there is nothing after Omega as far as the alphabet is concerned. And this means like bookends, Alpha and Omega encompass the entirety of the alphabet and God as the Alpha and Omega encompasses the entirety of reality. And that signifies, of course, that God is utterly in control, which is what we mean when we say that God is sovereign. It can be expressed in more familiar terms, perhaps, by uh, the three well-known attributes of the triune God. The God is omniscient. He knows everything. The God is omnipotent. God can do anything. And he is omnipresent, meaning God is everywhere in the person of his Holy Spirit. You can't escape from the presence of God, as Paul explains to the philosophers in Athens, that in God we live and move and have our being. And so God is in charge, God is in control of all events in our personal lives, in our church life, in our national life, and indeed in international affairs. God is in control. God is in control of nature as well. He is in control of the universe in which we live. He is in control of the planet on which we live. God is completely and totally in control. This is the teaching of the Bible. And it is very important for the people of Smyrna who are going through very hard times to recognize and to accept that everything that occurs to them, everything that is occurring and everything that will occur is in the sovereign power of God. God has a way of overruling the evil that is in the world. So that the Apostle Paul in Romans 8.28, in that well-known statement, can say, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. So then, there is the sovereignty of Christ. And it is something that the Smyrnan Christians needed to recall and to embrace, to lay hold upon it, because it is a very challenging doctrine, but it is also a very comforting doctrine that Christ and God, the Father, are in control of everything. Well, then the second self-introduction, self-description that Christ offers here is, of course, that he died and rose again. His death and resurrection. Well, you might say, surely that is such a fundamental truth 
to biblical Christianity that uh, every Christian needs to remember constantly. First, the death of Christ, when he bore our sins in his own body on the cross, and when he was made sin for us, this is um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he was made sin for us, the one who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. On the cross, he bore our sins. He took the penalty and the guilt of our sins upon himself. All we like sheep have gone astray, says Isaiah 53, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And when he says all, he's talking about all of those people that God has chosen from before the foundation of the world to be the recipients of his grace. Not everybody who is born, for we well know that there are many who reject Christ and the gospel. So then, it's a truth that we all need to understand, and above all, of course, we need to understand that having died for our sins, he then rose again from the dead. And the Apostle Paul again sums that up in uh, Romans chapter 4 and verse 25, when he says, Christ was delivered to death, that is, he was delivered for our transgressions and raised again for our justification. Justification is a declaration that those for whom Christ died have been cleansed from their sin, have been forgiven their sins, have been removed from the domination of sin. They are no longer servants of sin, but they are servants of Christ. That doesn't mean they don't sin, but they do mean, it does mean that their sins are forgiven. And the resurrection of Christ is the declaration that Christ's self-offering for sin upon the cross had been accepted by the Father and that uh, we had indeed been liberated from the power and the guilt of our sin. That's the essence of the Christian gospel. We are not saved uh, by our works, by our activities, not saved even by the things we believe. We are saved by the grace of God in Christ who died for us and rose again. Well then, I'll leave it at that for the first point. Um, we've made clear, I think, the sovereignty of God and the importance of the death and resurrection of Christ. Uh, the death and resurrection of Christ, as we shall see later, uh, was really rather important for the people of Smyrna, the Christians in the church there. Well, now the next thing that we see in the letter <clears throat> is the suffering of the church. 
the Lord Jesus says to them, I know your works. Uh, incidentally, again, the English Standard Version omits the word works uh, for the simple reason that no works are actually mentioned as they are in other letters. The ESV simply says, I know your tribulation, the first thing he mentions. Uh, but it, of course, makes no difference at all, because the important thing about this statement is the word know, I know. He knows their works, he knows their tribulations, he knows their poverty and so on. We'll look at those in a moment. And I, I want you to notice that it does not say, I know about your works or about your tribulation. And, and there's a big difference. Uh, let me illustrate that by saying that I know a great deal about Her Majesty the Queen of uh, England. I'm not all that much younger than she is, and uh, I have known about her since she was a child. And I, I could repeat a great deal, many stories and many accounts of her life. I could, in fact, know much more if I read more books about her and about the royal family and so on. But I don't know her. I have never met her in person. I've never actually seen her in person. I've heard her speak. I've watched her actions and uh, watched her on film and on television and so on. But I, I've never been right there close to her. I've never had any personal contact with her. I do not know her and she does not know me. Knowing about somebody is not the same thing as knowing them. Knowing about someone's circumstances is not the same as knowing those circumstances. Now, by contrast, many of you, I think, will have heard of or know of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is one of the greatest preachers, certainly in the United Kingdom, uh, of the last century. And uh, I have read books about him. I know a great deal about him. I've read biographies of him. I've heard him preach many times. And yet at the same time, although I know a, a, a fair amount about him, I also knew him, of course he's dead now, but I, I also knew him personally. I've entertained him in my home. I worked with him on certain problems in certain churches and I have had contacts with him um, uh, over a period of time. I, I know him personally. On one occasion he put his arm around my shoulders after the uh, meeting had taken place, a difficult meeting, and uh, everyone else had gone put his arm around me and he simply said, I'm glad you were here. 
Well, I knew him. I knew about him, but I also knew him. Now, when Christ says, I know your works, I know your tribulations, he means exactly that. He knows them. But when the Apostle Paul, in the fourth chapter of Philippians, writes, rejoice always, let your gentleness be known to all men, he adds, the Lord is at hand. And that simply means, quite literally, the Lord is within touching distance. The Lord is beside you. It can be a reference perhaps to his return, but uh, it has a more general application than that. The Lord is at hand. Paul knew that, and every Christian believer needs to know it and recognize it and embrace it as a glorious truth. Again, quoting Paul at the end of his second letter to Timothy, where he is in effect writing his own obituary, because he knows he's going to be executed very shortly, he refers to his trial. He said at my first appearance, they obviously had a preliminary trial and, and then a final one. Uh, but he said, at my first answer, no man stood with me. They all deserted me. They all abandoned me. He was left entirely on his own to answer the charges made against him. But then he adds, but the Lord stood with me. He was conscious that although he had no human support, the Lord was right there beside him, supporting him, upholding him, enabling him to witness a good confession before his accusers. The Christ is present. It is true for all people that we live and move and have our being in him. But it is especially true for the believer that we not only live and have our being, our existence in him, but he is in us by his Holy Spirit. Uh, Paul in Galatians 2 verse 20 can, can say, I live yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He knows our situation. And it's uh, beautifully summed up, uh, really, in uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 onwards, uh, where we're told that uh, seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, the profession of our faith. For we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted, tested, just as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. We have the access to God the Father and God the Son. We have the proximity of the Lord Jesus Christ who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And therefore, we have confidence and we have joy, the joy of his presence. We have peace, the peace of knowing that all things will work together, whatever appearances might be seem otherwise, uh, that all things work together for good to those that love God. But then he goes on, I know your tribulation. Now, tribulation means trouble, but it means severe trouble. Not small, petty annoyances. A tribulation takes its name from a Roman torture, and it always signifies severe trouble, difficulty, trials. And Christ is in us in our trials. That's the, the amazing thing. He has been through it. Our great high priest knows what it is to be tested and tried, tempted, yet, of course, in his case, without sin. But he knows what it is to suffer, and therefore, uh, Hebrews continues, let us come boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy, only sinners who need mercy, only the guilty who need mercy, and we do need that, and we receive it at his hand, that we might receive mercy. And, and this was particularly important for the uh, people of Smyrna, and find grace to help in time of need. We have a constant access to the sovereign throne of God, for that purpose. Now, the Apostle Paul is uh, often found speaking of his sufferings as this, uh, right at the beginning of uh, the second letter to the Corinthians. He writes, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our tribulations that we might be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Uh, Paul says two important things there. He says, first of all, that he finds great comfort in the God of all comfort, the Father of mercies, in his own troubles. And he had plenty of troubles, plenty of difficulties, plenty of trials. But not only that, he says that his experience of the comfort of God was something he could pass on. His experience of comfort from God enabled him to comfort others with that same comfort 
with which he himself had received from God. Uh, that's a wonderful truth, isn't it? So in our tribulations, in the tribulations of the church at Smyrna, which were obviously ample and, and, and constant, there was comfort in God. But then the next thing he says, when he is discussing their circumstances and saying, I know, I know your circumstances. The next thing he says, I know your poverty. And then he adds, but you are rich. Well, that's not a contradiction. It doesn't take too much thought, I think, to uh, realize that the poverty is material poverty. Uh, the lack of adequate resources, the inability to make ends meet, as we might say today. It's a physical poverty. But the riches that they possess in their physical poverty are spiritual riches. Those of you who know something more about uh, the book of Revelation that we have not yet covered will know that the seventh letter is addressed to the church at Laodicea. And Laodicea is the precise opposite of Smyrna. The Lord has to say to Laodicea, you say that you are rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, but you do not know that you are poor and blind and wretched and naked. The people of Smyrna, the church at Smyrna was uh, poverty stricken in material terms, but rich in faith. The church at Laodicea was obviously a wealthy church, but they were poverty stricken when it came to spiritual things. Now, uh, we can't get the wrong idea from that contrast. It's an interesting contrast and an important contrast. But it does not mean that in order to be spiritually rich, you have to be physically poor. Nor does it mean that those who are physically, materially wealthy are necessarily spiritually poor. There's no sliding scale on which we're somewhere between Smyrna and Laodicea. Uh, the more uh, wealth we have physically, the less spirituality we enjoy. That's not what the Bible is teaching at all. And, and let me underline that by reading uh, a short passage from Paul's letter to Timothy, <clears throat> right at the end of 1 Timothy 6:17. And Paul writes, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they might be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come 
that they may lay hold on eternal life. Now, it's quite clear that, that in Timothy's congregation there were some wealthy people. And he doesn't say, you don't belong here, go out, we don't want you, we don't want you wealthy people, we only want poor people. Uh, he doesn't say that at all, of course. He simply advises them, counsels them, commands them perhaps even, to use their wealth for the glory of God and for the blessing of others. And if they do, he says, they'll lay up treasure in heaven, in effect. And so it's not a question of wealthy people being short on spiritual riches and poor people having them in abundance. That doesn't follow at all. There is, of course, in the possession of riches, wealth, material wealth, there is temptation. And that great temptation is not, is, is to rely upon their material wealth and not to rely upon God. And that's one of the first things Timothy says, that they should not rely uh, upon their material wealth. They should not grow haughty or proud and look down upon those who are poor. Well now, I want to just develop this idea of, of spiritual poverty because the New Testament uses the term poverty in three different ways. First of all, the poverty, the material poverty that um, the church at Smyrna suffered and uh, the churches of Macedonia also suffered. We read about that in, uh, in 2 Corinthians. And yet out of their poverty, they gave abundantly for the relief of the churches in Judea. There is an abundance of spiritual riches often possessed by those who are materially poor. But uh, the Bible uses the term poverty, first of all, then in that material sense. And secondly, uh, going to the Laodicean pattern, uh, we see that, that there can be spiritual poverty, uh, which means that spiritually speaking, they are poor and blind and wretched and naked. They, 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 are, they don't understand it, they don't realize it, but they are spiritual paupers. But then there is a third way in which it is used, and we mustn't get confused about this, because at the beginning of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, we read this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And uh, Isaiah uh, speaks in these terms. He says, uh, to this man I will look, to this person I will look with favor. To him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. 
and there the word poor really is better translated humble. I'm going to look with favour and blessing upon the one who is humble, the one who is of a contrite spirit, who recognises his or her sin and has contrition about it, and as a consequence trembles at the word of God. Yeah, that's a wonderful statement, isn't it? That the word of God means so much to them that they tremble with joy over it and they may tremble with fear and cause themselves to flee to God for, for help and comfort. Uh, the word of God is extremely important to these people. Humility, they recognize that they have nothing to offer to God. Only, only confession of sin, the contrition of the spirit continually, but they also recognize that in the word of God they have riches, riches beyond uh, computation. Well, that is what the Beatitudes mean when it speaks of the poor in spirit. It's good to be poor in spirit because what it means is that we have no resources of our own, to recognize we have no resources of our own, spiritually speaking, and therefore we depend totally, wholly, entirely and always upon the grace of God for all that we need, and especially all that we need of a spiritual nature. Well then the next thing that is said uh, concerning the things that Christ knows is a reference to the Jewish synagogue in Smyrna. He says he knows the blasphemy and that word is correctly translated but I think in the context uh, the ESV is, is right in translating it slander. I know the slander of those who call themselves Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, this slander was obviously directed against the Christians in Smyrna. And you might say, well, you go to the end of the Beatitudes in Matthew's Gospel, <clears throat> uh, you read these words, blessed are you when all speak evil against you, but falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they treated the prophets who were before you. Well then, if those are the Lord's instructions that we've got to be glad and, and rejoice when people slander us and speak all manner of evil against us falsely because we are Christians, then why didn't the Smyrna's really enjoy being slandered and rejoice over that fact? Well, I think there's a little bit more to it. 
notice that the Lord speaks very severely about this Jewish synagogue. Uh, they were Jews, ethnically, but they were not Jews who inherited anything of the faith and nature of Abraham. So in that sense, in New Testament terms, they were not proper Jews. But I think the severity with which Christ speaks of these people, calling them a synagogue of Satan, suggests that there was something underhand going on here. It wasn't just one religious group criticizing another religious group. The Romans were very tolerant of different religions and probably very used to the fact that different religions accused each other of all kinds of things. I think the slander from the Jewish synagogue was aimed not so much at the Christians directly, but at the Roman civil authorities. Because we go on in the letter, we hear that the church at Smyrna was about to experience severe persecution in which he says the devil will throw some of you into prison and he goes on to imply that perhaps there would even be martyrdoms he said be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life I think and it's just my opinion I think that the synagogue of Satan, the Jews, were slandering the church in Smyrna by almost certainly claiming that the church did not acknowledge Caesar as their king. The church has another king, King Jesus, they say. And that means the the Christians are rebels against the Roman authority. And of course, it was only the Roman authority, the civil authority, if you like, that had the power to imprison people and to execute them. The Jewish synagogue didn't have that power, didn't have that legal right to do anything of the kind. Couldn't put them in prison couldn't harm them, couldn't persecute them directly. So what they were doing, I think, was uh, to stimulate the Roman authorities to notice this Christian group and by misreporting their beliefs and their allegiances as being uh, to King Jesus and not to King Caesar. And remember that in those days, was the beginning of Caesar worship, the deification of Caesar. He was considered to be God, uh, not so strongly at that immediate time, but it developed very strongly. But it had already come into existence. Caesar was considered to be God. And so by denying that Caesar was God, the Christians were accused or being accused of sedition. And that was how they got thrown into prison and as I say some of them possibly martyred and I think that's as far as we can go today that's covered our second point the third point 
the sufficiency of grace is something that I will develop in a separate episode. But I want you to notice and remember that the Lord has already told these people, these followers of his in Smyrna, that he is in control of events, even their imprisonment, even the martyrdoms, uh, his permissive will is in control. And also that out of these things, he will bring blessing and life out of death. We'll leave it at that for the time being. Thank you.